if we made education in paramedic school or EMT school proportional to the calls that we're going to take, we'd spend an inordinate amount of time talking about the geriatric fall or lift assist or ground level fall patient, right? Because that is such a huge proportion of what you actually respond to. The definition of a place that you don't know what time of day it is, that the lights are always on, that there's always sound and it's an unfamiliar and stressful environment. I think like if I said like, close your eyes, imagine such a place. Most people who've been in the emergency department would probably imagine the emergency department. Um, I came up with Vegas when you said that. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. And this is another episode in the thinking series. In this format, I get exceptional clinicians to think out loud about how they approach different chief complaints. The guest in this episode is emergency medicine and EMS board certified physician, Dr. Maya Dorsett. She's at Maya Dorsett on Twitter, and I got to know her as we taught pre-conference courses together for EMS educators. She's an EMS educator herself, and she picked the topic of lift assist. Her choice didn't surprise me because she is a systems thinker. And as she will explain, lift assist might not be sexy, but they are a big part of the job. And she argues that these calls are where we have the real opportunity to think like clinicians. Before we get to the episode, I want to mention that every episode of the Thinking Series features an artist who's also a medic. And the artist medic in this episode is Kate Bergen. Her work has been featured on Good Morning America, and I was honored to have her make a custom piece just for this episode. I'll link to her website in the show notes at medicmindset.com. And now, without further ado, here's Dr. Dorsett discussing lift assist. So I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for forever. As you said, we I kind of figured out that, oh, Dr. Dorsett loves a lot of the same things I love, system design or just culture. I think you love the idea of dissecting the psychology of decision-making and not assuming that when people make errors that they're just error-prone, but rather you know something within the system or their educational background or their frame that just needs examination rather than the person's character or something like that. I would agree with you. I'm also going to make one rule for today. Do you want to hear my one rule? Of course. You can predict my rule, I think. I, I, I think I probably know what it is. <laughs> go, ahead, go ahead and say it. You got to call me by my first name. <laughs> and I will. But, <laughs> but the listeners don't know that you've told me to call you by your first name 20 times. And so it'd be, <laughs> it might be a little off-putting if it just I'm just all hanging out with Maya and not giving you the uh, respect that you deserve by by being Dr. Dorsett. But that's the last of it. I promise. That's the last of it. So we're here with Dr. Maya Dorsett. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about your background? You yourself have listened to Medic Mindset, which throws me to no end. So you know maybe what the average listener, who they are, what they're used to hearing, and maybe you could explain who you, you are to them. I am somebody who became an EMS physician through a very circuitous route, and I would say I'm probably more an EMS educator than I'm an EMS physician. I started out in basic science and then changed over to medicine and went to med school at WashU and then did residency there. And while I was in residency, I got really interested in um, healthcare systems and medical education. As I was 
gaining interest in that area, I did my EMS rotation. It was on my EMS rotation that I uh, became fascinated with EMS, mostly because I love the idea of meeting patients where they are and sort of knowing where they come from rather than sort of divorced from their environment as they arrive in the ED. How do you improve the care for the system? How do you um, make it so that we can meet the needs of our patients in ways that I think we're utterly often failing at in the emergency department? I just thought, you know, EMS is where it is. So I actually took like a 90 degree turn from the direction I was headed, which was towards being continuing the route of like a physician scientist and decided to pursue EMS. So I did an EMS fellowship at WashU. Um, and I'm one of like the weird EMS fellows that I was never an EMS provider before I did an EMS fellowship. So the operation stuff was really daunting to me. Some of it still is. I'm way more comfortable with it than I was before. But um, so I did fellowship there. And then I moved to the University of Rochester after I finished fellowship. And here I'm the medical director for a paramedic program and a couple smaller agencies in our region, and the Associate Regional Medical Director for Education and Quality. So that's what I do professionally now. EMS is the best choice I've ever made. So I didn't, I knew a lot of what you just told me, but the part I didn't know was this 90 degree turn after doing your ride-alongs. Yeah. Are you saying that you went on a a ride-along, and based on what you saw and experienced, that was singularly responsible for a change? Or do you think it, I think most decisions are usually a collection of things that lead us to that decision. What percentage of that decision do you think was because of those ride-alongs? More than 50%. I think the interest, the underlying reason I got interested in public health and system design and medical education, the rest of it sort of created the platform where the straw that broke the camel's back or whatever, whatever the right term is, sort of the thing that put me over was um, the ride along. And I tell this uh, story to my paramedic students actually on their first day of class or the day when I give my history of EMS lecture. And it wasn't even just part of it was the entire experience, but it was actually a ride along with a single medic and a single patient interaction that sort of like made me see the light, which is why I loved your episode on ride alongs so much because uh, I could totally empathize with it. And it was a guy named Steve Tomko, who is still in St. Louis, and it was with the St. Louis Fire Department. And we picked up a patient who complained of shortness of breath, uh, and his vitals were okay. And, and he wasn't that sick. Steve talked to him, and it turns out that he'd been recently discharged for a CHF exacerbation and had been prescribed Lasix, but hadn't filled it because he didn't know what it was for. And Steve, you know, sat on the bench and the whole ride into the hospital, he sat there and basically gave a layman's explanation of CHF, how it works, why the water pill is important to take, and did some true patient education uh, that we don't do often enough in the emergency department. And I thought, you know, this is where it is. Like, if we want to say, keep our patients from coming back to the ED, if we want to actually meet their needs and keep them healthy, not just sort of treat the downstream consequences of not keeping people healthy, EMS is where it is. Because the last time I could remember, I had a full 20 minutes to counsel a patient on their health and give them that one-on-one attention had been a long time. 
that distinct interaction, I mean, I can literally close my eyes and remember like sitting in the captain's chair, watching Steve have that conversation with a patient. And then he looked at me and was like, oh, did I do okay? And I was like, that was amazing. That's how I ended up in EMS. I appreciate you telling me all of that. I was going to ask, what was the one patient? What was, you know, what was it that you saw or experienced? And I think that is in line with the theme of that episode, uh, Mixtape Ride-Alongs. The theme was the tiniest little things you do when someone is riding along with you can get people to either exit or stay in the field. And in your case, kind of enter the field. You're talking about him educating that patient on CHF. And I'm thinking about most paramedics. I wonder if you know, they think of themselves as emergency medicine clinicians. And I'm wondering if they don't feel empowered to really talk about primary health care, either because they don't think their education covered that, or they don't think it's really their role to counsel or educate patients about these primary. Although CHF obviously can have an emergency component. It's just a chronic ongoing medical problem, not an acute one necessarily that he was educating his patient about. I wonder, I would love to talk to that medic about, you know, where do they pick all that up? Where do they learn all that? Not only the content of the counseling, but then also that that is their role. Because I think a lot of medics don't think it's their role. Some places comes up all the time when I'm teaching it is talking about end of life. So for example, um, my students read the book Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. When we talk about it, in class, a lot of the discussion is like, are we allowed to even talk about some of these issues to patients? And I just feel like, why not? <laughs> You're not telling them what is their percent prognosis, right? But it does not take a medical degree to know that somebody with stage four cancer, counseling them that having the conversations about what makes life worth living with their family members, right? Like that is something that one human being can do for another. And I think we all, the thing that goes wrong in medicine is we all assume that somebody else is going to have those conversations. Those kinds of things are all, right? It's part of the continuum of care. And the students are like, I just don't know. I'm like, you're not writing an order that the patient is DNR, DNI. Like, I'm not asking (laughs) you to do that. Like, I understand that that is beyond the scope. But having a conversation about having the answer of what is it, the guiding question of what is it that makes life worth living for you? What are the things that matter to you most? You don't need an MD or a DO behind your name to ask that question. When a patient comes into the emergency department, they are divorced from their outside environment. Part of the transfer of information is not just the vital signs and the medications, but what is that home environment? And there's lots of things that you can sort of tell about patients and their ability to adhere to their medication regimens and all those kinds of things. And the way that you get that is by having a conversation with the patient. Understanding a patient's understanding of their medical condition is huge. And that's not beyond the scope of any paramedic at all. Or honestly, an EMT. An EMT can ask a patient, you know, what is your understanding of your medical condition? In reality, they do that all the time, right? Saying like, what's your medical history? I think we know that a lot of people who say, well, I don't have any medical problems. And then you look at their medication list and they clearly have a bunch of medical problems, but they don't know why they take any of those medications, right? Giving them a statement like, hey, I see that you're on a lot of medications. Have you ever sat down and talked to your primary care doctor about what you take all those things for? That's not out of the scope. I mean, when I think about what is the the future role of a of a paramedic, I think it's all those things. And when I think about how do we 
sort of treat the deficiency and the missing needs of our healthcare system, a huge component is going to be things like mobile integrated health slash community paramedicine. And I think it's sort of linked to, honestly, the, the topic of geriatric fall. And actually, one of the reasons I got interested in it is because I was interested in, um, I think there's sort of the perfect mix between understanding, like, it's sort of this, I call it the mystery flavor of the, you know, like the airhead or the dum-dum or whatever. Like, you don't know what's actually in there. It could be actually something really high acuity, but it could also be a situation where somebody needs to stay at home and have risk modification, scope of the EMS provider really needs to be sort of understanding that entire, the entire spectrum from high acuity to, you know, the potential for non-transport and such. So I wanted to do a thinking series with you and I usually try to leave it up to the guests to kind of pick their topic. And I think of that series of, of episodes in terms of chief complaints. When you came up with the idea, I think you said ground level falls was the topic. And I thought to myself, well, that's not a chief, that's not a symptom or a sign, but it is totally a call type. And it's, it's a mechanism. I guess talking about that mechanism is a way to order your thinking about a certain type of patient. I guess maybe they don't have, they don't all have the same complaint, right? Some of them might have hip pain. Some of them might have no pain. Some of them might have syncope. Um, but what they all have in common is a ground level fall. I want to get really specific about what that means. To me, that means they were standing up on their feet and fell to the ground from standing. Is that is that your definition? Yeah, I think a lot of these things get dispatched. My definition is uh, the person on the floor can't get up. <laughs> okay, so that's what you want to talk about. Yeah, because I think those almost universally get dispatched, right, as this low acuity fall patient. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think it's useful talking about thinking or the decision making around that kind of patient because the decision making about that type of patient actually starts at dispatch, right? I mean, that's true for everything. You get your dispatch and then whatever information you have at dispatch. And when you go into that call, you're already ordering your thinking and your differential before you ever see the patient. Right. And I think what goes wrong with the, quote, lift assist patient is that they don't automatically get defined as a patient by a lot of people. People go in assuming it's going to be a low acuity situation. I'm going to pick somebody up off the floor and I'm going to put them back on the couch or whatever. And in reality, I think it's one of the sort of one of the most complicated decision making type patients Mm. can have. Um, And it's. People think it's sort of deceptively simple. It's also something that you do all the time. So when I think from a system perspective, how do we improve care on the system? Everybody loves to talk about cardiac arrest, right? And like, how do we resuscitate cardiac arrest or crash airways and all these things that people define as sexy. But those are rare events with potentially great impact. Although, right, the proportion of patients who have like a shockable rhythm and a good prognosis before you get there is even smaller than that. And there's reasons to focus on those things. But if you think about the grand scheme of how much you do something, if we made education in paramedic school or EMT school proportional to the calls that we're going to take, we'd spend an inordinate amount of time talking about 
the geriatric fall or lift assist or ground level fall patient, right? Because that is such a huge proportion of what you actually respond to. People become paramedics because they think that they're going to be responding to crazy traumas and cardiac arrests. But that's super, super rare. But if you want to do a lot of good, you're going to get really, really good at caring for the person on the floor who can't get up and thinking through that problem. You're going to catch a lot of things. If you can think downstream about prevention, other things, you're going to be able to make a huge amount of difference, even though it doesn't seem super sexy. I mean, one of the things I tell my students is the untreated lift assist patient is the next cardiac arrest. The grandma who's left on the floor for days ends up dying. You should celebrate every one of those like a save, just like you do a cardiac arrest. <laughs> and no way yeah. that ever happened, right? Because you just prevented. If you can take care of somebody and think about why they fall or potentially prevent the next fall, like you have done a lot of good. It's just like when you talk about feedback, Ginger, like you need like a certain ratio of positive to negative to sort of keep going. Mm-hmm. I think we define po- the positive impacts just too narrowly. We think about these super like, sexy saves. But if you can derive value and understand the impact of taking good care of one of those patients, then you can feel like you do a lot of good every single day you go to work because I guarantee you, you're going to go on one of those goals. Yeah. Which would really help with burnout. And in the ED, um, you know, it's really easy to get burned out working in sort of an overcrowded, tough emergency department where sometimes I don't feel like I can give the care I'd like to give, but I go in there every single day and it's like, I'm going to do one good thing for one person, like that is my goal for today. And sometimes that's literally a warm blanket and a turkey sandwich, making sure that one person who uh, feels cared about in their time of need. And it's that simple. And I think if you realize like the amount of good that that does cumulatively, it's like really easy to say, not all the things went the way I want them to today, but I at least did like one good thing for one person today. And it's incredibly satisfying and makes us so that I still look forward to going to work, you know? Mm -hmm. So we want to use the language lift assist. I think I do want to talk about that dispatch topic of lift assist because I'm I'm always interested in what kind of drives people's, mm, their frames. And when you get dispatched to a lift assist, that is a strong frame because it's literally telling you what you're going there to do. You're going to assist someone, lift them off the ground, and that's the point of going there. And it can be taken kind of so literally that now to kind of keep that broad differential or keep the mindset open enough to look at this patient as someone who may need things, you know, things in addition to being lifted off the ground, that can be a little tough with that, with that dispatch kind of nature of lift assist. I think this gets into, you know, like system one, system two thinking from Thinking Fast and Slow uh, by Daniel Common. So, right, system one is the heuristic that we use. So when we hear lift assist, right, our heuristics go into like the order. Like I will pick somebody off the floor and I will put them back in bed. We have to say automatically that there needs to be system two thinking. When I form sort of the habits, I think about in my own practice in the emergency department, there's certain things that I know that I quickly jump to conclusions to. I have a mental trigger that says, pause, heuristic free zone. (laughs) You need to use system two thoughtful thinking about this. So the lift assist is one of those because 
The easy thing to jump to is that I'm going there to pick up somebody off the floor. But the reality is, is that you have a patient who has had to call 911 to get off the floor. Um, And when I was in the MS fellowship, Sabina Braithwaite uh, was my fellowship director. And she's just like, that ain't normal. (laughs) (laughs) That is not normal. I'm like, now there are certainly situations like patients who need assistance. Having to call 911 to physically get off the floor, right, already has a pretest probability of somebody being sick or having a comorbid condition or the rest of it. That ain't normal. And you have to take it seriously. I mean, if all you do is you pick them up off the floor and you pop them back in bed without doing a thorough medical evaluation and thinking about why that event would happen, what injury they might be, what other medical things might be going on, etc., then you've done that patient a disservice. And there's data to support that. There's been multiple papers that have actually looked at the mortality of this group of patients or the anticipated need for inpatient admission within the next couple of weeks. Um, and it is a reasonable probability um, that that patient is going to need to be transported to the hospital or they have at least a couple percent chance of dying within the next two weeks from a call that mentally, right, system one tells us like, that ain't a big deal. That's just, that's just a lift assist, you know? So Mm -hmm. I was looking at some of those papers right before we jumped on this call, just briefly scanned them. And it looked like really large sample sizes where they were looking at a lot of patients with these mechanical falls or ground level falls or whatever you want to call it. And kind of the prediction of mortality, as you said, hospitalization, what types of things are they being admitted for? Like, What are some of the underlying conditions that make someone not be able to get off the ground or, or fall in the first place? How do you sort through those? As far as the fall in the first place, I think there's sort of two components. One is the why did they fall in the first place? So taking a really good history is important. When I have a patient who can't get up off the floor, the main things I think about other than sort of understanding their comorbid conditions, right? A fair number of fall patients are actually strokes. So when I look regionally at stroke data and things like a huge number of strokes are are dispatched as falls, right? Because if I suddenly become hemiparetic and land on the floor, that is dispatched often if you actually look at the way things are triaged as a falls. If you think about all the different kinds of shock, the way that your body responds to inadequate brain perfusion is that it has ask gravity to help the situation. So a person who's upright is going to end up on the floor. So uh, things like predominantly sepsis, um, but I've also gone and had patients, heart blocks, MIs, uh, aortic stenosis causing syncope, and all those things can cause somebody to end up on the floor. Just saying like doing sort of an initial assessment and putting them back in bed, I think the key is you have to ask the questions about What were the events leading to somebody ending up on the floor doing a really thorough physical exam? Because essentially, the only thing that sort of unites all those things is that it's a huge mixed bag is that the person is on the floor and they can't get up. And these often, I say, are people with other comorbid conditions. When you think about the, I mean, it's mostly we're talking about geriatric falls here, aren't we? I mean, that's what we're talking about. When you talk about lift assist, we just wouldn't even call it a lift assist if it was a 30-year-old who fell down and couldn't couldn't get up. We wouldn't even call it that. We would call it like something really scary. 
because they're geriatric, they're like, oh yeah, this happens to old people, right? Sometimes they just can't get up. It's like, yeah, like I, I would say, like I have not ever looked at what is the age distribution of patients dispatched as a lift assist, but I have, ne- I've gone to a lot of lift assist calls, and I've never gone to one and realized that the patient was underneath the age of fifty. The lift assist, I think, is really the terminology for a ground level fall in a geriatric patient with comorbid conditions. <laughs> Because every single one of those, other than the person, sometimes there's like the slip off the bed or on the toilet or whatever. For the most part, it is a ground level, a ground level fall in that population, which by definition, right, is a medically complicated population of patients. Mm -hmm. I've run, run these calls. I remember a key thing that I was always trying to sort through was, was this a slip and trip or was this something where... They can't really account for why they fell. I would do my due diligence with the history, but the the honest truth is I never really trusted what they were telling me. And I did a thorough physical exam and diagnostic kind of testing, more objective data in addition to all that subjective stuff. Because I always worried, particularly with, you know, the older population that they would maybe be in denial about what caused them to fall because they really don't want to go to the hospital right? So lying to themselves or um, to their clinicians, because they're just not ready to accept that maybe something medical happened to cause them to end up on the ground. And so I was always very, very skeptical of their histories. And they would tell me, no, 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 I just tripped over this. Like, you really need to convince me uh, with a really great story, maybe observed by someone else that this is, this is how you ended up on the ground. Yeah. I think the observation by another person is the best you have. And then sort of the rest is the assessment of their mental status. Because there's a lot of patients who, in this group, who have a great mental status, right, where they can give you a good history. And I think most patients, if you convey how important it is, like, I just really need you to be honest when I ask this question, um, because it affects how we take care of you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I just want to take care of you to the best of my ability they'll give you a clear answer. But uh, there's a lot, because this tends to be a geriatric population, I think there's a lot of patients who do have dementia and some degree of cognitive decline. And in the absence of having somebody who can corroborate the story, it becomes really difficult to assess what happened. The one benefit that you have when you're in the home that I don't have once the patient's in the hospital, right, is if they say, I tripped over such and such a rug, you can actually have the physical stuff based on right where they fell and what's there and see is the mechanism even plausible. I mean, there's a lot of people who fall out of their bed because the bed's too high off the ground and things like that. So you have that physical data. But that is a huge component of the of the questioning is is this first, you know, is this a mechanical fall or is this a precipitated event by something else? And sometimes it's really hard to tell the difference. And I recently reviewed a case that we did for case review at my EMS agency where the patient had given such a clear history that it was a mechanical fall. It was so well documented by the paramedic who uh, took care of her, who clearly had answered all those questions. And he still did this whole medical evaluation because, you know, and she had pain in, pain in her leg, so she had a traumatic injury too. So she was definitely going to the hospital, but she turned out to be an AFib with RBR at rate of 180 and then 
we talked about the differential for that. And it turns out that she was anemic with a GI bleed and a hemoglobin of five and was an AFib with RBR and the rest of it. And literally the story was I was making my bed and I somehow slipped and hit my knee and now it really hurts. And he had done such good diligence. It turned out to be probably a large medical component to it, which is why you really have to pair those two things together, right? Not every one of these patients needs to go to the hospital and there are situations that we're going to miss. But if we don't do our due diligence and really thinking about the history and doing a thorough assessment with good objective data, we're going to miss a lot of serious things. And I know like me saying that a patient might lie, nobody wants to hear that. And I don't mean they're lying like they're trying to be deceitful. I'm, I, I kind of, I wish I could go back and say that differently. What I mean is it's like an element of denial. Like they really don't want to consider that maybe they were weak because they're not dumb. They've seen their friends and their peers and other family members go to the hospital from like simple falls. Many of those people never left the hospital. You know, your brain fills in details that it's, mm. right? It's a normal cognitive response. If there is a moment of time missing, sometimes your brain just fills in the details with yeah. what information it wants to be there. Mm-hmm. We do this all the time, right? Like people can have two different versions of the events and we're just like, those both can't be true. And neither one of them is lying. It's just how their brain actually filled in the interceding details. And if your brain has a choice of what is going to be in there, it wants it to be there. Like, oh, you know, I must have tripped. It's not that I was, you know, suddenly dizzy or et cetera and lost my balance and fell down. You're so great. That's ex- that. This is why I love talking to you. You're absolutely right. You you put to words kind of what our all of our brains do, which is we would prefer to fill in the blanks with something positive and not scary, right? Yep. We do it all the time. All of mm-hmm. us. <laughs> is there any framework of how you would approach these patients, a standard framework, or is it more fluid and customized for every uh, every patient? The assessment is really based on the history, the physical assessment and the diagnostics is really based on the history that you take. That history that you take is not just, you know, what were your symptoms before? How did this happen, et cetera. Thinking about why that happened, a really good medication history and a medical history is really important to take. For example, as far as risk factors for a fall, there's tons of medications that can lead to somebody being more likely to fall. And a lot of the geriatric population is on those medications. And for some reason, they're on those medications together. But a huge one is beta blockers and alpha channel blockers, which can increase orthostasis, makes it so that heart rates can't respond and makes it so that people are more likely to fall. Uh, There's other things like diuretics. When you have to run up quickly to get to the bathroom and you're older and you orthostasis is sort of a normal thing that happens as your blood vessels turn into solid pipes and aren't as elastic. If you don't have a moment to sort of stand next to your bed and make sure that you're not dizzy anymore before you move forward, that might cause you to fall. And then there's tons of things like pain meds and benzos. And then on top of it, it's not just the ones that cause you to fall. It's other medications that increase the risk of an adverse outcome. So I think about a fall and the potential for serious injury I fall a lot more when I think about is somebody on um, an anticoagulant or an antiplatelet agent like Plavix? Because 
I might fall down and hit my head. And even if I had like a little ditzel of a head bleed, the clinical significance of that is probably minimal. But if somebody who's therapeutic on their warfarin or is on Xeralto falls down and hits their head or Plavix, for example, the probability that they have a clinically significant head bleed or one that a subdural that develops, you know, the next week after I leave their house is a lot higher. Thinking about those things as part of the history is really, really important, as well as, you know, taking a really good medical history. Do they have a history of orthostatic hypotension? Do they have a history of stroke? Are they currently being treated for any infections? Do they have a history of recurrent infections? Because a lot of these patients will have all those things. And then I get it in my mind, right? Do I think that there was a medical etiology for this fall or not? Sort of like, what is my pretest probability based on that initial component? What is my worry about, you know, traumatic uh, repercussions of the fall? And then I frame my assessment, my sort of head-to-toe assessment on that. But I think really important components are cardiovascular assessment. This is uh, the syncope slash fall patient is one of the few, few patients where I listen really hard for murmurs because things like aortic stenosis um, in an older person can make it so that they syncopize or fall and then do a really good assessment of peripheral pulses and a good neurologic exam and then a thorough evaluation for traumatic injury. A really important part of assessment is understanding what is their baseline status confirming are they at their baseline. So if this is somebody who can normally walk with a walker and they are no longer, one thing that's really important, especially if you're going to end up leaving them where they are, is that you reconfirm that they are able to ambulate at their baseline status. Bedbound patients, right? You can't do that with, and sometimes what you're doing is there's a bedbound patient who sort of slipped out of bed. But a lot of these patients are, they ambulate with a cane or they ambulate with a walker or they ambulate independently. And you need to make sure before that patient is ever left in the house that they're able to ambulate at that status. One, it's confirming that some of these other helping support some of these other medical things aren't going on, that they're not so orthostatic or lightheaded or whatever, that they're going to fall right back down or dizzy at their sense of balance. But for traumatic injuries especially hip fractures. One of the only ways that we find out that a patient has a hip fracture, for example, in the hospital, a lot of these patients, they will have a normal x-ray. If that fracture is not displaced, their bone density is so low that the x-ray will look normal. And so even if this patient gets transported, one of the things before they ever get sent home is we always, we call it the road test. We walk the patient. I find out what is their baseline ambulatory status and I'm able to confirm. And if they have any sort of hip pain and they can't ambulate at their baseline status, we'll get a CT scan or occasionally an MRI, but usually a CT scan to look for what we call an occult fracture. And the word occult there is that it didn't show up on the x-ray. And a bunch of these will have pelvic and hip fractures. And the only way that's found out is that they have pain or they can't ambulate at their baseline status. Occasionally, right, we'll still ambulate at their <laughs> baseline status, um, but they actually have like a femoral neck fracture that's impacted. Um, and these older people are really tough and they sort of go through it. But um, one of the things that I've seen commonly is that people sort of pick them up and put them back in the chair. And then, you know, the patient, like, okay, I'm good, but I don't leave the house until I confirm that they can ambulate at their baseline status. It's an excellent point. There's a great paper by Williams et al. that came out of Wake County that looked at a community paramedicine program to make it so that they have a non-transport protocol for patients in assisted living who fall down because 
one of the things we can talk about is sort of what are the harms of actually transporting a pa- transporting one of these patients to the hospital is not a benign intervention. There's certainly risk to the patient of being in the emergency department, especially the patients with dementia. They looked at, you know, risk of mispathology for non-transports. And one of the things that they ended up adding into their protocol was confirmation of ambulatory status. Uh, because you can, it's really easy to miss hip fractures if you don't actually walk the patient. Because grandmas or grandpas like, oh, I feel I feel fine, right? And it's because they're not moving and they're not bearing weight. That's an excellent point. Everybody listening today can add to these calls if they're not already doing that. You know, it's something that they can just know. Every patient gets a little road test. Yep, a road test. So, what are the harms of transporting? Tell me more about that. Harms of transporting. I think that there is um, a lot. And in general, in the grand scheme of things, I think we underestimate the harms of too much, uh, too much medicine, which are huge. The harms of transporting are not just cost to the patient in the system, but that is actually one of them. Sort of when we think about cost to the patient in the system, but the emergency department is not a healthy place for the geriatric patient. So one, if they have dementia, If you think about what is the risk of delirium, like what are the things that make it so delirium is most likely to happen? Part of it is sort of a divorce of day and time, right? An unfamiliar environment, no clocks available to sort of reorient. The definition of a place that you don't know what time of day it is, that the lights are always on, that there's always sound and it's an unfamiliar and stressful environment. I think like if you, I said like, close your eyes, imagine such a place. Most people who've been in the emergency department would probably imagine the emergency department. Um, or a place for that. I came up with Vegas when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The emergency department in Vegas. I'd much rather be in the ED than in Vegas. Actually, me too. Actually, me too. I, I hate Vegas. I hate it so much. <laughs> But one of the things about Vegas, right, is like you walk through and like the lights are always on. You're like, what time is it? You're walking through at seven o'clock in the morning. There's people like smoking a cigarette, playing the slots, which just seems like a weird thing for seven o'clock in the morning. Well, the night, it looks exactly the same. And if you think about the emergency department, other than the number of patients sort of ballooning in the late evening, right, and then things sort of slowing down sometimes, hopefully around like four o'clock in the morning as far as flow, but it's still usually packed, all the lights are on, all the alarms are going off. It is not a great place for patients with dementia and risk of delirium. And there's definitely patients who develop delirium once they're in the ED. Um, There are places that are geriatric certified EDs. So there's been a big push from sections of emergency medicine to try and actually get geriatric designation from ED. And part of it is actually making these um, environments sort of safer and less stimulating and more catered to the geriatric patient because most of our EDs are like the antithesis of that. And then there's also the risks of um, overtreatment, overdiagnosis, overimaging. So let's say right, you take a patient from dementia with dementia, they get removed from their home, they come to the ED. I don't necessarily get the full story, but I can't get a full story. So what do they get? They get through this full medical workup. They get a bunch of labs done. They get their head scanned. They get their neck scanned. They get a urine in because everybody thinks maybe it was a UTI and that made them fall. I find some random bacteria in their urine because uh, like, you know, 
the like crotches of old people, actually the crotches of most people, right, have some other sort of bacteria and getting a clean sample without cathing the patient is really hard. So we get a dirty urine sample. So what happens when we get a dirty urine sample? People feel compelled to treat, right, the bacteria that they find in the urine. And then they get the side effects of antibiotics. They'll get, the patient will get C. diff, right, which will make a whole bunch of other hospitalizations. They'll get, um, you know, they'll get hyperkalemia from their bathroom. They'll get side effects. So all those things, we act like we're doing the most conservative thing and the best thing for somebody by transporting them. We even use the language we're erring on the side of caution. Yes. And in reality, there's an art to saying just like transport is an intervention. Sometimes the air of caution is the air of caution for ourselves and not for the patient. And we have to recognize when that's true. It's hard from the EMS perspective because like everybody signing refusal forms, it's like, you're going to die if you don't get transported to the hospital. <laughs> that's not, that's like not an adequate counseling, you know, a correct counseling of what are the, the risks and benefits, but understand that for a lot of these patients, the transport to the hospital itself is an intervention where you're considering the risks and benefits. And sometimes, right, we seriously underestimate those benefits because we haven't done a thorough assessment and physical exam and thought through what serious things might actually be going on with our patient. And we just like put them back in bed. And sometimes, right, we err on the side of caution, which is, you know, refusals are a high risk area. And we underestimate the risks of taking a one of these patients to the emergency department where they can get disoriented and get an infection or get over-treated and over-imaged and sort of this whole sort of cascading costs in our, in our healthcare system. And that's why I think these are some of the most interesting patients because for the most part, I would say high acuity calls are actually pretty algorithmic, right? Like trauma does not require for the most part, super high level decision-making and art of medicine, Mm -hmm. but these patients do. Yeah. Like these patients really do. They, because you have to sort of think about a broad differential, really evaluate that broad differential, I would say pre-hospital with the tools that you have and understand what things you can't evaluate for and then do real counseling not to mention sort of the downstream things, right? So the greatest risk factor for somebody having a fall is the fact that they fell before. So there's also the third component, which is fall prevention. If grandma fell on the throw rug, and if you do your whole assessment, you know, she doesn't want to go, she doesn't want to go to the hospital, you've done a thorough assessment, you're comfortable with that. Do you actually roll up the throw rug for her? Right, you contact her primary care doctor and say she might need us, and think, or call up her daughter and say, like, I think she needs like uh, bar handles, etc., because it's a risk factor for a fall. This is an area where there's a huge amount of work for things like community paramedicine, mobile integrated health, for somebody to check on them in a week. In terms of counseling patients, one of the things I do when I get these patients in the ED is I see whether or not they or the family actually understand why they're on all the medications they're on. I can't tell you how many of these elderly patients come in on like Xanax, a beta blocker and Xeralto. Like it's like a pill that comes in together, which is, you know, patient with AFib and anxiety when really it's like a recipe for a subdural hematoma and death. (laughs) 
<laughs> and you have to, and they haven't been counseled on sort of what are the risks and what are the alternatives because a huge risk factor, right, for falling in the first place is polypharmacy. And these patients get, just think about sort of medication overuse. They just get medication after medication just added on and very rarely things taken away. And sometimes things need to be taken away because at some point adding so many things on um, is just a recipe for disaster in these elderly patients. And that takes time and counseling. And sometimes the impetus for that to happen is an EMS provider sitting down like, do you know why you're on all these medications? Do you know why they're for? Encouraging them to have that conversation with their doctors. Do they really need to be on 13 medications, which by the way, cost them $2,000 a month or whatever ridiculous amount. I love it that you're talking about things like harms of transporting, because I think most medical directors are afraid of that. I think they're afraid of talking about the other side of the coin because uh, maybe they're not confident that the clinic, the EMS clinicians, the EMS providers, paramedics are nuanced enough in their educational background like that they can, you, you were talking about the art of it, right? So maybe they're not confident that your typical paramedic can apply it as an art. And so they're afraid to talk about how transporting someone to the hospital can cause harm to a patient because the last thing they want is for a listener thinking of it as just black and white and not hearing all the nuance of what you're saying. Why are you not afraid just to talk to medics as if they can apply medicine and think through decisions much like you can? The way I teach my paramedics is to think through medicine and apply those decisions like I can. I think that's the way that we should be teaching paramedics. And a lot of these things, and this is actually part of what we should be teaching our BLS providers, because this is like another thing, right? If we think about um, what the ED standards say and what EMT curriculums look like, right? They're all about like, I will do CPR and I will give Narcan and I will backboard and transport or whatever a patient, right? These things that are high acuity situations. And then what do we dispatch them on? We dispatch them on the lift assist because that doesn't need ALS because we've already preconceived that that's not going to be a sick person. Oh. Right? Like we should probably be changing some of our dispatch, right? Like uh, trauma patients for the most part actually don't require like <laughs> that much. <laughs> like a lot of that doesn't actually require sort of complicated ALS. You know what but- it doesn't require? Like the the multi-system trauma, trauma patient or the trauma alert patient that's like high, high mechanism that what it doesn't require is decision-making about where that patient should go. It's, it's, it's very clear that when there's significant mechanism, these significant injuries, that they go to a trauma center. It can be pretty binary. Whereas the lift assist patient requires someone to walk in that door and navigate that patient to the right place. Whether as you referenced earlier, like calling the primary care doctor, calling a family member, counseling the patient. It's a long conversation that is I've never thought about this till you you've just said this about, you know, we think of trauma, you know, like a gunshot wound to the chest, like that needs ALS, right? Sure, it may need some ALS interventions, but the decision making about which hospital to go to, that's cut and dry. With the exception, right, of somebody who needs 
a needle decompression. If you think about trauma and where the evidence is, for the most part, endotracheal tubes and saline don't save people. Air going in and out and rapid transport saves people. Mm -hmm. This is different depending if it's a rural or a city system, right? Depending on what your transport times are, et cetera. There's going to be nuances to that as well. But the places where like you really need a good thought process and like high level thinking is some of these things that we just automatically dispatch BLS only crews to because the entire system has that heuristic system one thinking and it's a lift assist. Um, So whatever your dispatch system is, I encourage you to actually look at how the algorithm works to spit something out as a lift assist. Because you should understand how something gets dispatched as something. So as part of fellowship, I actually had to go take the emergency medical dispatcher course. When I looked through that card, I was like, so many things that are really serious just sort of fall through this like Swiss cheese crack of how something actually gets dispatched as a lift assist. Unless somebody says some key things up front, Mm -hmm. all these patients are going to come out as lift assist. And I have definitely gone on these calls and the person has had a stroke. I've had a second degree type two heart block. I've had sepsis. And in the area, um, you know, just like in my own region, one of the first talks I gave at one of the EMS agencies was on geriatric calls and why they're really important. And since then, multiple providers are like, I had a lift assist the other day and it turned out to be this lady who was septic or this person turned out to have X or I had a posterior stroke and basically they were dizzy and didn't have balance. And it's one of those things that until you really start looking for it, it's just going to sort of, you're not going to realize like how many of these things are actually there or underneath it. And then if you look, one of the things I encourage everybody to do is your own system, pull out all your lift assist or save level fall calls, and then look at return visits within 72 hours within a week and take a look at those calls. You should actually be monitoring sort of how many return visits to lift assist calls are we actually having within a 72 hour period, right? Mm -hmm. And then sort of understanding that. One of the things that sort of backs up the level of decision-making and the ability to say, can we safely leave some of these patients at home and like weigh the risk and benefit is that anecdote is one thing. So my feeling about those particular things, those are sort of powerful stories to pull people in. Uh, But the reality is, is that this is all data that you can look at within your system. And like you can develop rubrics that say, this is what I think is standard of care and that the mechanism of the fall was investigated and documented that we have a full set of vital signs that we're not leaving people at home with hypotension and tachycardia and mm-hmm. all these other kinds of things. And you can develop those rubrics and have it so that you actually pull all that data within your system and take a look and say, does the data support what we're doing as far as non-transported and transported patients? Cause I think you're going to find that, And some things you do really well, and then some things that you do less well. But I find that people can certainly make these decisions. And sometimes the reality is those decisions can be made better in the patient's home. I think every single person has responded to a call and said, you know, I don't think that there's any injuries here, but I don't think that this person is safe where they are, right? Like you look in the fridge, there's no food in the fridge. 
The place is like a hoarded disaster. Clearly, the person needs more assistance than they have. That information um, is really is really key. Once that patient ends up in the hospital, unless that information transfer happens, or one of the huge things is how frequently is this person calling? Because I think every EMS system has that person who calls all the time to be picked up off the floor, but doesn't ever get transported to the hospital. The thing that's really important to understand from a systems perspective is until we can like come into the actual century that we're in and integrate the pre-hospital and hospital record, the information of that person's unmet needs, right? Because the person who calls 911 every 48 hours to be picked up off the toilet has an unmet need, right? And is using resources in a way that not only like hurts the system, right? But is not really a beneficial, there should be a better path to meet that person's individual need. But that stuff isn't integrating the system. So when they see their primary care doctor, that person finally gets transported to the hospital. None of that information right, is available to the people who are making those decisions. So finding ways to sort of document that and convey that information. So in my system, when I have somebody like that, um, I actually get notified when that person is transported or when they call EMS. And then I work to contact their primary care doctor, contact the case managers and the social workers at the hospitals to try and unfortunately sort of work around the lack of integration of the system so that we can meet the needs of the people we're trying to take care of because picking them up over and over and over again, but not having that information transferred to the continuum of care doesn't actually solve the problem or meet the need of the patient. And I think we um, lots of times get angry about people and we say that they're like, abusing the system. And I think we have to reframe our thoughts and say that there's people whose needs are unmet by the current system. And we have to think about how to redesign that or work around that, ideally redesign it uh, to make it work for them. So I think that's a huge part of like the lift assistations. Like nobody gets excited to go to the call, but these are people you can make actually a tremendous difference in your life in not, not your life, maybe your life too, but their life for mm-hmm. sure. If you can think about what is their unmet need, like why Mm -hmm. did this happen? Even if they're staying at home, like how can I make their life better and how can I integrate the system that is unfortunately, right, like totally not integrated in most places. Like how can I achieve that for this person? Um, Because that makes a huge difference. We all remember the cardiac arrest we resuscitated who walked out of the hospital. Like those are experiences that we like keep with us through the rest of our lives But I think these are equivalent experiences. These are things where we can make a tremendous difference in somebody's quality of life. It's just like a different path to get to that. I think you told me this is your favorite lecture or a favorite thing to teach. Mm -hmm. So you have presented this information in a lecture format? I have multiple times, more than once. Do you use PowerPoint slides for that or keynote slides for that? I use keynote slides because I'm a Mac addict. Plus, I'm addicted to a particular uh, animation only available in keynote called Magic Move. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's like a true addiction. Like, I can't get through stuff without using it once, which is an issue because now that we transmit, you know, over Zoom and stuff, those kinds of things don't work. So once again, another thing I have to redoing myself but yes I just like you know (laughs) so 
Give me an example of one one slide that you might have. What's a what's an image or words that might be on one of the slides? I think the most important one that I have is actually at the very beginning when I give this talk at an agency, one of the things I ask for is their numbers because I asked for the numbers of the total number of cardiac arrests they responded to in the last year and the number of um, 17, uh, 17 alpha fours that they respond to, like the, the lift assist. Mm-hmm. And I try and show them the numbers. So I actually almost universally start this talk and I ask people to reflect when think back to when they decided on a career in EMS, like what kind of call they pictured themselves responding to. It's mm-hmm. like close their eyes and picture it. And then I have people raise their hands and I say like, who thought of a cardiac arrest? And there's always hands raised and like, who thought of some crazy trauma scene? And they all have their hands raised. And I said like, who thought about picking up an 80 year old woman off the floor. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Nobody raises their hands for the most part. And then I show them the numbers and say like, well, actually let's use the data and say like, what is it that we actually respond to? If you think about like a multiplication function, right? So if I say like the value of the resuscitated cardiac arrest is a hundred and I respond to five of them, right? That's like 500. If the value of like picking grandma up off the floor is like a five, right? And I pick her up off the floor a hundred times, then I get to the same overall value, whatever numbers you assign to those things. I said, in reality, it's probably more than a five because the end point is death of not being picked up off the floor. Mm-hmm. The reason I love giving this talk is because I think it's really important for people to acknowledge the value in what they do to understand how much those things matter. And I think that gets lost in sort of the day-to-day operations and sort of the value of these high acuity calls. And I want people to understand that it's like the summation of all these little pieces of good is actually a massive massive amount of good. And do you show them the literal numbers, maybe an annual number of cardiac arrest versus lift assist? Yep. For their own agency. And what, what is it usually, uh, what's the difference usually like 10 times? Usually like 20 times. Is it? Yeah. I have to think about it, but yes, it's probably like 20 times. I've called that the bait and switch of EMS. So it's the bait. We, We get them into the profession by baiting them with this, the visual, the one that you had them raise their hands to cardiac arrest, big motor vehicle collisions, heroic measures. And then as they're in school, once they're pretty starting to get invested in school, time and money, they start realizing like, oh, <laughs> that's not what this is. It is sometimes, but that's not the majority of what this is. Some people are almost all the way through school before they get to acceptance of, and maybe even years into the working in the field before they get to acceptance of what the job actually is. They either accept it or they don't. And if the ones that don't, we call that burnout. They leave They leave the profession because they're unhappy. But it really wasn't their fault because we kind of sell it as, and when I say we, I don't even know who we is other than we've named it emergency medical services, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
I've thought a lot about this because I want medics to have career longevity. That's my main mission when I think about what I want to do as uh, a person in the in, in the profession. I just want every move I make to help increase the longevity of our paramedics that are in the field right now today. I want for them to have long, happy, fulfilling careers. I can trace back to the reason a lot of people have left. When they start getting edgy or angry, it's when they start getting mad at their patients for not being more sick, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, we have this in the emergency department too. We all love working in the critical care bay and the trauma bay and not so much in triage. I think when we think about recruiting people to the specialty of being a paramedic, one of the things that when I interview there is that's also part of what I try and to fish out is I think when we think about what is the future of what EMS is going to be doing, you know, in some places like New York, we got to change a few laws and we have to think about changing reimbursement, et cetera. But like, treat in place and no transport and like mobile integrated health and making it so that the resource that is that resource that a patient gets is matched to what their need is in this community-based healthcare service. That's like not a new idea for the future now. That was in the EMS agenda from 1996, right? A community-based healthcare service. Mm. I think we have to recruit people for that job. Like it's not fair to say like what you're going to be doing is like going lights and sirens everywhere and treating all this like sexy stuff and getting your hero patch. And I'd be holding like a lot of people's hands and you're going to be there when people die and you're going to be there when people are born. And um, you're going to pick grandma up the floor. You're going to make sure that there's food in her fridge. You're going to call her daughter. You're going to make sure she understands her medications. Like that is, that's what the job really is. That's who we need to recruit. If you think about me, when I started residency, the one fellowship when people were like, what fellowship are you concerned if you're going to do a fellowship? And I was like, blah, 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 but like not EMS. And part of it was my impression of EMS was that. (laughs) And it wasn't until I saw what EMS really is, which is like the ability to take care of people in their home, to understand where they're coming from in a way that I don't have an ED, the ability to have like one-on-one counseling with a patient, even on the way to the hospital, right? Like one-on-one care. You just have one patient at a time, usually for 20 minutes until I saw that. I didn't appreciate what EMS was and things, but it was seeing that aspect that made me change what I was doing. And so I don't think that our recruitment would go to nothing if we did that. But I think if we recruited people and trained people for the job that they were actually going to do, we'd have a lot more uh, people happy in the job. I want to send a huge thanks to Dr. Dorsett. Maya, thank you for sharing your time and expertise with Medic Mindset listeners. EMS was made infinitely better the day you decided to pick us. Thank you. I also have to send a huge shout out to iSimulate. iSimulate is a clinical education technology company, and their partnership affords me the opportunity to make this podcast last forever. Thank you, iSimulate. I have to redo that because my son continually calls me and I can't. That's okay. You can call him back too. You can mute yourself and call him back. We're just recording. So. Okay. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. What do you need? I'm recording something, Betty. (laughs) Okay. One.
I'm coming home later. Not for a few hours. I will walk Bruce. <laughs> I'll take care of the chickens. <laughs> okay? And you just get your brothers to grandma and grandpa's house, okay? All right. I love you. Thank you for being responsible. Bye. <laughs> well, that was an important phone call. Like, who's going to take care of the chickens? <laughs> <laughs>